ओम नमो भगवते श्रीअरुणाचलरमनायरुणाचलरमनायरुणाचलरमनायरुणाचलरमनायरुणाचलरमनायरुणाचलरमनायरुणाचलरमनायरुणाचलरमनायरुणाचलरमनायरुणाच
but so long as our mind is going outwards, associating with his teachings will be constantly reminding us and encouraging us to turn back within. Um, so that's the implication of cherished fair association. Then in the second verse, he says, um, what exalted state one achieves here, here implies in this world, in this life, by clear investigation, which arises in the heart when one takes refuge in sadhu association, that which is extolled is not possible to achieve by a teacher, by the meaning of texts, by virtuous actions, or, or moreover by any means. That is, by the ordinary teacher, those who give lectures on Vedanta, or those who extol, expound the meaning of Vedanta, of Vedantic texts, or by doing virtuous actions, or by any other means whatsoever, we cannot attain that state, which can be attained only by clear that vichara. And that clear vichara will naturally arise in our heart to the extent to which we take refuge in sadhu association. In, in this context, sadhu association means associating with Bhagavan's teachings, keeping our mind dwelling on Bhagavan's teachings, which will constantly encourage us to turn our mind within. Turning our mind within is the best satsanga of all, because what, what as Bhagavan says in, um, in the first sentence of the seventh paragraph of Nana, yatatamai ulladu apmasarupamondre. What actually exists is only Atmaswarupa. Atmaswarupa means the real nature of ourself. In other words, ourself as we actually are. So um, <coughs> what Sat actually means is our own being. What we actually are is Sat. So turning our attention inwards is the best Satsanga. So long as our mind is coming outwards, we should be constantly associating with the thought of Bhagavan and his teachings, because that will constantly encourage us, repeatedly encourage us um, to, um, to turn back within. That is the efficacy. So the more we dwell on Bhagavan and his teachings, the more love we will have to turn within. That's why he says, um, what exalted state one achieves here by clear investigation. The word he uses for investigation is vichara, which implies self-investigation, apma vichara, which rises in the heart when one takes refuge in sadhu association. So the more we, our mind is dwelling on Bhagavan and his teachings, the more that vichara will naturally arise in our heart. That is, the love to turn within will grow to the extent to which we are associating with Bhagavan. And, and his teachings. Um, Bhagavan and his teachings are really one, because why Bhagavan came, he, as Sadhuam often used to say, Bhagavan didn't just come to be the subject of a story. Bhagavan came to give us these teachings. So Bhagavan, yes, when we're looking outwards, we can say Bhagavan is still living on in his teachings. Of course, he's living most directly in our heart as our own being. I am. But... Um, Outwardly, he's living in the form of his teachings, which are constantly reminding us to turn within. And then um, in the third verse, he says, if one adheres to living with those who are sadhus, uh, for what are all these restrictions, these niyamas? Uh, that is, Bhagavan wrote this verse in the 
this, all these verses are translations, by the way. But Bhagavan wrote this verse when someone, I think it was Echamal or, or some uh, one, one lady was um, who was very orthodox in her in her habits, and she uh, very strictly observed fasts on particular um, festivals. Uh, times of festivals or significant times she would observe fast. Sometimes she would fast even for more than one day. So um, in that context, Bhagavan came across this San the Sanskrit original of this verse and he translated it for her. So if one adheres to living with those who are sadhus, for what are all these restrictions? Uh, when the air of the excellent cool southern breeze is blowing, you say, what is the purpose of having a fan? That is, a fan is useful when it's hot, but when the cool southern breeze is blowing, what, is the, what need is there for a fan? L likewise, when we are in the association, when we, have, when we are blessed to have association with sadhus, to live in their company, which means not only physically living in their company, even mentally, our mind should be dwelling in the company of Bhagavan, should be dwelling on him and his teachings. If we do so, all other restrictions, all other practices become unnecessary. Because ultimately, the only practice that will annihilate ego is vichara. And that vichara will rise in our heart to the extent that, that is the love to turn within, uh, uh, to, to practice vichara will rise in our heart to the extent to which we associate with Bhagavan. We live, we live in, we live with Bhagavan. That doesn't mean live physically with Bhagavan, but our mind is constantly dwelling on him in his teachings. So these are the three verses that I discussed uh, in more detail last time. I just wanted to, to give a brief resume to get the continuity. Um. Then, so this time I'm going to talk about verse 4 and 5. What Bhagavan says in the fourth verse is, tapum tan chandirinal, danyam nal kalpakatal, papum tan gangayal, Parome. Um, this is the first sentence. What this means is um, heat will be destroyed by the cool moon, poverty by the good wish fulfilling tree, and sin by the Ganga. That, that, that is, um, <clears throat> in, in a hot country, in the daytime, the, the sun will be unbearably hot, but in the evening when the moon rises, um, the heat of the daytime is uh, is destroyed by that cool moon. Um, it's not literally, but it, it's uh, that that is the the night time when the moon is shining is is the cooler time of uh, of the uh, of the day compared to the daytime when the sun is blazing. So that's what it means. Heat will be destroyed by the cool moon. Um, heat can also be here um, a, a metaphor for the. The heat of samsara, the burning, scorching, suffering of samsara. That's a metaphorical implication of it. Um, poverty by the good kalpaka. Kalpaka is the heavenly wish-fulfilling tree. And papa, sin or demerit, 
by the Ganga. That is, the belief is if you take part in the Ganga, your sins will be washed away. So all these things will be removed by uh, that heat by the cool moon, poverty by the wish-fulfilling tree, and sin by the Ganga. That's the first sentence. And then the second sense, uh, sentence is... Um, uh, a tapum muddle in mundrum, ahum, inayela sadukal, um, uh, sadukal tum, uh, tum, sorry, tum, ma dashinatal tan. What that means is all these three, beginning with heat, all these three mean the heat, the poverty, and the, um, and the sin, all will be, uh, will depart or slip off or cease, um, uh, just by the great sight of peerless uh, sadhus. Word for sight here is dashana. Dashana means seeing or the, the sight of. Um, so by our seeing the, the peerless sadhus, the peerless sadhus referred to here is obviously jnanis. That is the, the literal meaning of the word sadhu. Sadhu is any, um, any uh, benevolent person or a good person, basically, as a sadhu. Um, but in this context, it, he's, the word sadhu is used in the sense of jnani, uh, namely those who know and abide as sat, pure being. Um, so he, what, he, here, as I say, heat, poverty, and um, sin. As far as heat is concerned, it's not just the physical heat. It did that this is metaphorical. So heat can also mean the, the burning, scorching of samsara. Poverty means not just the material poverty, but the, the poverty of um of uh well the, the the state of ego is an impoverished state. Our real state is a state of infinite happiness. When we rise as ego, we thereby impoverish ourselves. So we can take the heat and poverty here, not just in the literal sense, but also in a metaphorical sense. So the heat is the heat of samsara, and the poverty is the the, the poverty of um, um, the, the, the impoverished state of ego. Um, at least in the first sentence, we can take them literally true. It's the physical heat that is removed by the cool moon. It's the uh, material poverty that is removed by the kalpaka, uh, by the, kalpaka the heavenly wishful-filling tree. Um, but in the second sentence, Bhagavan isn't just talking about the physical heat and the material poverty. He's talking, he's, he's by, by implication, it's the... the the, the heat of samsara, the burning, uh, suffering of uh, the state of samsara, and the poverty is the poverty, the, the impoverished state of ego. So all these three, beginning with heat, uh, will depart just by by merely seeing the peerless sadhus. Um, so that's the meaning of that verse. And then the fifth verse, um, there's an interesting contrast between this fourth and fifth verse. What he says in the fifth verse is, uh, 
Kalman Am Devangal Am Mahatukalaku Ine Aha Am. What that means is titas, uh, uh, which are composed of water, and deities, which are of stone, which are stone or earth, are not at all akin to those Mahatmas. Titas mean sacred bathing places, and so they're composed of water. Deities here means the, the images of God, which may be composed of stone or earth. They are not at all akin or similar or comparable or equal to those Mahatmas. Mahatmas means great souls. Here it's referring to jnanis. Um, and then he goes on to say, Abe, Abe is referring, Abe means they, it's referring to the, um, to the, 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 the theaters, the holy waters and the, the, the images of deities. They, Abe, um, Enil Nalal Tume Edipa. That means um, uh, oh, oh, sorry, there's one word I missed there. Amma. Amma means it's an expression of ah. It means more or less the same as ah in English. Amma. It can also um, well, no, not here. I don't think it can be um, yeah, it means ah. Um, they give rise to purity by countless days. That is the, the holy bathing places like the Ganga um, and so many other. Most uh, most places of pilgrimage, most kshetras, most holy pl um, places. Um, in addition to temples, they also have theatres, places to bathe. And the holy waters are said to remove the sins and so on. And uh, worshiping the deities also uh, does so. Uh, well, they give um, they, they give rise to purity, as he says. So they they, they will give rise to purity by countless days. By countless days implies it gradually over a long period of time. That is, if you have faith in the in the theaters and the day and the images of deities and worship them, uh, that will gradually give rise to purity. Um, and then he ends by saying, Sadhu Kal Kanninal Kandidave Khan. That literally means sadhus as soon as they see by eye. Uh, Khan means see. Uh, that is, uh, sadhus as soon as they see by eye, see. It's, uh, that is, the last Khan means see. It's an uh, imperative. Um, so the implication of this, these last two sentences, uh, that that is actually their their link because the uh, sadhus as soon as they see, there's no verb there, but it's implied the same what's in the previous clause. They will to may avipa give uh, give rise to purity. So whereas the theaters and the deities give rise to purity gradually over a long period of time. Sadhus give give rise to purity as soon as they see us by their eye. Um, so the contrast between this verse and the previous verse, in the previous verse, he's talking about um, uh, 
the, the great uh, darshana of uh, sadhus, in other words, seeing sadhus, is, uh, will remove um, the heat of samsara, the poverty, the impoverished state of ego, and um, sin uh, by our seeing the sadhus. Uh, but in this verse, he says, he talks about purity. That is, the what are the impurities in the mind? The impurities in the mind are our Vishaya Vasanas. It's the Vishaya Vasanas, so long as we're under the sway of Vishaya Vasanas, we do actions. And um, so we are liable to two sins, so long as we are acting under the sway of our Vishaya Vasanas. Um, and acting under the sway of our Vishaya Vasanas immerses us in the this great ocean of samsara. So the heat of samsara is the result of our acting under the sway of our Vishaya Vasanas. And our, our impoverished state as ego is also result from our... Well, firstly, we rise as ego. As soon as we rise as ego, it's the very nature of ourself as ego to act under the sway of our Vasanas. So the impurity is the very nature of ego. So what he's talking about in verse 4 are the effects of impurity. Whereas, And those effects of impurity will be removed by our seeing the jnani. But um, the, 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 the impurity that, that, that is the cause for all those, that heat and poverty and, um, and sin, will be removed when the sadhu sees us. So the implication is far more important than us seeing the jnani is the jnani seeing us. There's a very nice uh, story. Um, this story Devaraja Mudliya used to say, um, that is, um, this was one of his favorite stories because he, he, he understood it was such an instructive incident. In, in, incident. Um, that is, Towards the end of her life, in the late 1940s, there was a lady called Mudliya Party. She had been feeding Bhagavan for many years, since the days when he was in Virupaksha cave. So by the 19... She was older than Bhagavan. She was a, a widow when he, he... She was probably maybe 10 or years or more older than Bhagavan. Um, so... By the late 1940s, she was in, she was in, she was nearing the end of her life, and her towards the end of her life, she started to lose her eyesight. So in the last few years, she could no longer see at all. But in spite of her uh, blindness, she used to come every day, and she would stand, come in, come to the hall and stand in front of Bhagavan, as if looking at him. So one day, Devaraja Mudliya, who was very fond of her, this is this. We shouldn't un, um, we shouldn't mistake this story. Devaraja Mudliya was very very fond of her. So he said to her affectionately, "Party, party means grandmother. Grandmother, when you can't see, why do you come here every day to um, to uh, see Bhagavan, to stand in front of Bhagavan?" And she turned round to him and said. Silly boy, or something to that effect. That's how Dev Rajamudi used to tell him, say it when he told this story in English. She said to him, obviously she was speaking in Tamil, she said to him, Silly boy, who can see Bhagavan? <laughs> <laughs>
I don't come here to see Bhagavan. I come here to be seen by Bhagavan. And hearing those words, Bhagavan smiled and nodded his head at Devaraja Mudliya. So this um, this shows that it's more important than our seeing Bhagavan is Bhagavan seeing us. Of course, this is at the physical level. We're talking here about um, us seeing the physical form of Bhagavan and Bhagavan's physical form seeing us. But seeing has a much deeper meaning. What is it to really see Bhagavan? Seeing Bhagavan is not just seeing his physical form, looking within our own heart. But we can only look within our own heart to see Bhagavan when, when the look of his grace falls upon us. Of course, his grace is always shining in our heart, always drawing our mind within. But to the extent to which we yield ourselves to that inward pull of grace, we we come to stand in the presence of Bhagavan, to be to to bathe in the gaze of his grace. So um uh, we can only see Bhagavan to the extent to which he sees us. And we can we so we have to come into his presence, and his presence is ever shiny in our heart as I. So though that story about Debra, um about Mudliya um, Party is seems to be about the physical outward things, it also has a deeper inner meaning. That we why do we need to turn within to see what we actually are? Because to the extent to which we turn within, we are thereby bathing in the gracious glance of Bhagavan's in the, the glance of Bhagavan's grace. So it is the look of his eyes, of, of his eyes means not just physical eyes, his the eye of his awareness, but is that is purifying us. So to the extent to which we look within, he looks upon us and we are thereby purified. Um, so th these, these, like all of Bhagavan's teachings, they can, or any, any true spiritual teachings, they can be understood. There are different levels of meaning that they have, different levels of implication. So they can be explained in, in different ways. We can take these five verses as purely just talking about the physical association with, with the sadhu, but actually it has a much deeper meaning. As Bhagavan said, the real association with the sadhu is not just being in the physical presence of the sadhu, the real association is our mind being attuned to the sadhu. In other words, attuning our mind to Bhagavan's teachings, immersing our mind in his teachings, trying to put them into practice and trying to imbibe them more and more. That is a far better satsanga than merely being in Bhagavan's physical presence. Because the more we dwell on his teachings, the more that vichara naturally arises in our heart, as he says in verse 2. Of course, it will arise in our heart to some extent if we are just in his physical presence, but that takes much longer. The, the, the real presence of Bhagavan is not just his physical presence. He is ever present in our heart as our own being. So being in the presence of Bhagavan means turning our attention within and uh, sinking back into the heart. Om Namo Bhagavate Sri Arana Chalaramanaya well, thank you, Michael. So, um, 
in modern times, uh, I mean, like we are here in 2023, how are we to identify uh, the sadhu? I think you mentioned that. We can, can, can give, give a bit more uh, practical tips on What that. is the sadhu? The sadhu, in this context, the sadhu means one who abides as sat. So long as we're looking outwards, that is, sat is what is shining in our own heart as I. So, but what is the greatness of Bhagavan? If Bhagavan were just a person, but Bhagavan, of course, seems to be a person like us. But if he were merely a person like us, there would be no greatness in that. The greatness of Bhagavan is though he appeared in human form, he was not that human form. Bhagavan is the, is the light of pure awareness that is ever shining in our heart as our own being. So though... In our view, Bhagavan seems to be external. Uh, um, he he is not actually external. Um, there's a verse in Guru Vachakavaya, I can't remember, I think it's in the chapter about the greatness of Guru or something, where in which Bhagavan says, there is no more vile and heinous sinner than one who, who takes the jnani Though the jnani appears in human form, one who takes the jnani to be that human form, they are the greatest of the worst and vilest of sinners. So we, of course, we have love for the outward form of Bhagavan. We have love for Bhagavan as a person because that's how he appeared to us. And it's through that human form that he gave us these very precious teachings. But we should not, we should not, um, uh, think of Bhagavan just as that person. We need to understand that though he appeared in that human form, what he actually is, is the infinite space of uh, pure satchit, pure being and pure awareness. Bhagavan is satchit itself. He is the ultimate reality. That which is always shining in our heart as I, appeared outwardly in the form of Bhagavan in order to tell us to turn back within. So the practical guidance for us is um, Shravana, Manana, and Nidhi Dashana, uh, yes. reading, reflecting, and practicing Bhagavan's teachings. Bhagavan's teachings, um, particularly his original works. His is, original is the best works, form yes. we can have yes. them, you know. Yes. Because his teachings are expressed most clearly and perfectly in his original writings. In the books that record questions and answers, there are two problems with those sort of books. Firstly they were not very accurate recordings because people were recording from memory. And people, if someone, if, if, um, if someone here, try, after this, um, this, uh, this meeting is over, if any of us try to write down all that was said during this meeting, we won't be able, we'll be able to maybe remember the gist of it, but our memory of it won't be very perfect. And if we didn't, if we're not understanding what is being said, We'll only be able to record what we understand rather than what is actually said. So books like talks and day by day and uh, Maharsha's gospel and things, there are nice ideas in them, but we can't take them to be the exact words of Bhagavan. We, we can take, if we understand Bhagavan's core teachings as expressed by him in his original writing, then we can read these books and uh, get the, what is useful from them. Um, 
so one one problem with these books that where other people have recorded what Bhagavan said. One thing problem is the problem of the inaccuracy of the recording, and another problem is not only did it go through the filter of the of the of the record the person who was recording, not only it went through the filter of their understanding and the filter of their memory, it also went through the filter of their translation because they Bhagavan didn't speak in English. These people recorded in, in English. So it's it's far removed from actually what Bhagavan said. Um because we we, we can see the the translations done by these people, for example, Munakla Bengsteramaya, who recorded talks, he in those days, he also translated many b- b- books, Uludunapu uh, and other things. But we can see from his translations what level of understanding he had. His translations are very far from perfect. And that was due, true of the majority of people who are around Bhagavan. The other problem with all these books is Bhagavan doesn't, um, when it's it, clearly illustrated by something that is recorded in talks itself. That is, there was a Swami in the 1920s and 30s, who even nowadays is quite famous because he wrote a book, Autobiography of a Yogi. His name was Yogananda, I think. He went to America and he started a self realization fellowship. And he wrote this book, Autobiography of a Yogi, which was very popular. Um, it was a very popular book among um, Americans and Europeans and Westerners who were interested in um, in spirituality. So he came to Bhagavan in the mid to late 1930s. And during his visit, one of the questions he asked Bhagavan is, uh, uh, Bhagavan, what, are the, what teachings are to be given for the uplift of the masses? And Bhagavan said, Teachings cannot be given en masse. Teachings should be according to the taught. That is, the teachings Bhagavan has given us, these are the very deepest teachings. These are not these, these are not for everyone. Not everyone will be... Re- I mean, the majority of people will not be ready to accept Bhagavan's teachings. Even the majority of people who call themselves Advaitins will not be ready to accept Bhagavan's teachings because Bhagavan's teachings are an extremely pure and radical expression of Advaita. So um, when people came and asked Bhagavan questions, not everyone was like Murugan or Shiva Prashan Pillai, who had come only for um, to, to know the truth and to annihilate the ego. The majority of people who came to Bhagavan and asked questions, they came with all sorts of worldly worries and concerns and everything, and they... They were not all, the majority of them would not have been ready to practice self-investigation or or go deep into the practice of self-surrender. So when they asked Bhagavan questions, Bhagavan had to give answers that were appropriate to them at their level of spiritual development. So Bhagavan didn't, the majority of answers that Bhagavan gave to questions did not represent his deeper teachings. So if you want to get the real teachings of Bhagavan, the deeper teachings of Bhagavan, works like Uludu Napadu, Nana, Amabidei, um, Upadesha Undia, Arunachas Panchakam, these original writings of Bhagavan are most important. Even a work like 
this work we're discussing now, the majority of the verses in this uh, in this work are not Bhagavan's original verses. They're verses that Bhagavan translated from various sources under various different circumstances. So we can't take all of these things as the pure teachings of Bhagavan. Um, there are various reasons why he translated these in particular contexts. So it's the original writings of Bhagavan that are most important. Of course, there are many in verses. I can't remember exactly how many. Um, I think maybe 15 or 16 or so of the verses of um, Uludunapriyana Bandham are original verses. Um, but uh, the majority of them are not. Um, so it, it's in Bhagavan's original writings, but we we can find um, we can find his teachings expressed in its purest and most um, undiluted form. Of course, even when Bhagavan is answering people's people's questions, the questions of people who were not ready to come to his um, his real teachings, he was slowly nudging them towards his real teachings. So even when he's answering questions in a more um, coming down to the level of a questioner, we can still see some reflection of his real teachings coming through in what he's saying. Thank you, Michael. So, um, Murti made a comment linking verse 5 with Akshramanamali, verse 15, Kannaka Kannai Kannindrikanunai Kanuvadevar Bharanachala. Yes, very, very good point, very good point. I, I had thought of that earlier and I forgot about it. Yes. Um, verse 15 of, of Akshramanamali is very, very pertinent here. Um, what Bhagavan says in this verse, this is Kannuku Kannai Kannindrikanunai Kanuvadevar Bharanachala. Um, <clears throat> that means, Arunachala, who can see you who, being the eye to the eye, sees without eyes? See. What that means is, that is, uh, <clears throat> Bhagavan is the, when he says Bhagavan is the eye to the eye, eye here is a metaphor for awareness. So, what is the, the physical eye, is something through which we see the world. But the physical eye is not seeing anything. What is actually seen through the physical eye is the mind or ego. So the, the mind or ego is the, it, it's sometimes referred, in Bhagavan refers to it in the last verse of, um, of, um, of Anmavide as manakan. Manakannakukannai, he, say, he says there, the eye to the mind eye. So the mind eye is the awareness that sees the world. But the awareness that gives light to the mind, the real awareness that illumines the semi-awareness called mind, is what Bhagavan refers to here as the eye to the eye. So Arunachala is the eye to the eye. In other words, Arunachala is the one real awareness, the pure awareness, I am, but gives light to the mind, enabling the mind to know all other things. Light means the light of awareness. So that is what is meant by eye to the eye. So Bhagavan is not something external that we can see. Bhagavan is, what, what Bhagavan says about Aranatra is equally applicable to him because Bhagavan, Bhagavan is Aranatra, Aranatra is, is Bhagavan. So Bhagavan is the eye to the eye. 
That is, he's not just the external form we see, just like Arunachi is not just the external form we see. Though they appear in that, in, though he appears in the form of Arunachi and in the human form of Bhagavan, the, what he actually is, is the eye to the eye. That is the fundamental awareness, I am, which, is, which shines in the mind, giving light to the mind. So who can see you, who, being the eye to the eye, sees without eyes? So what does he mean by sees without eyes? Bhagavan is pure awareness. Pure awareness doesn't need any eyes to see anything because in its clear view, there is nothing other than itself. So Bhagavan sees us by being us. He is what we actually are. Um, as he says in uh, verse um, 20, um, 26 of Upadesh Undia, Tanai iritale tanai aridalam, being oneself and known is knowing oneself. So Bhagavan sees us by being what we actually are. But how can we see him? The, uh, another verse that's very relevant here is, of course, uh, um, in Uludunapadu, verse 22. Um, what he says in verse 22 of Uludunapadu is, um, except by turning the mind back within, completely immersing it in God or the Lord, who shines within that mind, giving light to the mind, how to fathom God by the mind. That is, how can the mind know God? The mind is something finite. The mind is something that shines. The mind is, is the outward-looking awareness that, um, that, that uh, uses the light that is God, the light of pure awareness that is God. But that is, that light of pure awareness illumines the mind, uh, as he says, that shines within the mind, giving light to the mind. So the mind, the awareness that illumines the mind is the light of pure awareness. But the mind is the awareness that is, is not pure awareness. It's the awareness that is looking outwards and seeing objects. So how can this outward-looking mind, this uh, which is a mere semblance of awareness. It's chidabhasa. It's a, a reflection or a, an appearance of awareness. It's a, a likeness of awareness, but not awareness itself. How can this mind see God? It can see God only by turning back within and immersing itself. In other words, um, drowning, losing itself in God. As, as he said in the previous verse, um, he ended the previous verse with a beautiful sentence, Unadal Khan. Unadal Khan means becoming food is seeing. So how can we see Bhagavan? Only by becoming food to Bhagavan. In other words, only by being swallowed by him, by losing ourselves completely by him, turning our mind back within and immersing ourselves completely in him. Then only can we really fathom him or know him. Because he is the infinite whole. How can this finite mind know the infinite whole? It cannot. So only by turning back within and losing itself in that infinite light of pure awareness, losing itself in and as that infinite light of pure awareness, can it know that light of pure awareness. So we cannot see Bhagavan without being Bhagavan. 
And in order to be Bhagavan, he needs to see us, which is why he prayed like this um, uh, in this uh, verse of uh, verse 15 of Akshamalai. Because the verse begins with uh, that most of the verse is a rhetorical question. Kannaku kannai kanindri kanunai kanuva deva. Who can see you who? Being the eye to the eye sees without eyes. That's a rhetorical question. Obviously, the implication is we cannot see him. So the prayer is pa. Pa means see. So it is for him to see us. We cannot see him, as as um, as um, Mudliya Paki so wisely said. Who can see Bhagavan? It's for him to see us. And by his seeing us, he draws us back within and uh, swallows us within himself. And only when he, we, we are wholly lost in him, when we, we merge in him and cease to be anything other than him, but only when we remain as him, can we know him as he is. Can we know him as he knows himself? He knows himself just as I am, nothing other than I am. So until we, we see ourselves, we, we already experience ourselves as I am, but we don't experience I am in its pure condition because we now experience ourselves as I am this person, I am Michael, I am this body, or I am whoever. That is, so long as we, we uh, see ourselves as a person, we are not seeing ourselves as we actually are. So long as we don't see ourselves as we actually are, we are not seeing Bhagavan because Bhagavan is what we actually are. So we cannot see him by looking outwards, only by turning the mind back within and immersing it completely in him. And in order to turn the mind back within and to immerse it in him, he needs to see us with his eye of grace. That is, it's his eye of grace that draws us back within and gives us the love to look deep within ourselves, to see ourselves as we actually are. Seeing ourselves as we actually are alone is seeing him. That is, uh, Swarupa Darshana alone is Ramana Darshana. Swarupa Darshana means seeing ourselves as we actually are, seeing our own real nature. That alone is Ramana, true Ramana Darshana, truly seeing Ramana. Right. No more Ramana. Kanam uh, Ramanesan. Right. So thank um, you, Morty. That was uh, thank you for reminding me. That's a very, very important point. Right. I, I meant to talk about both these verses, but I, I forgot about it. Um, Sandy says many old devotees talked about the powerful experiences they had by the physical look and presence of Bhagwan. Can you please comment? Yes, of course. That is, we in our view, Bhagavan seems to be a person, but Bhagavan is not a person. So what is it that we when you when you see me, what is it you see shining through the eye? That is the eyes of a um, the window to the soul. They say say so. You are seeing what you are seeing shining through this person called Michael is an ego, someone who is aware of himself as I am Michael. But when we see Bhagavan, there's no such person. There's no such ego there. There's no one who's aware of it themselves as I am Ramana Maharshi. So that is what is shining through. Bhagavan, shining through his eyes, through his words, through his actions, 
is the light of pure awareness that we actually are. So the look of Bhagavan's eyes is very, very special. But people also used to say to Bhagavan, Bhagavan, when I come here in your presence, I feel so much peace and everything. But when I go away, I, all the old um, troubles come back to me and I worry about my all my worldly problems and everything. So the mere look of Bhagavan's physical eyes, unless we, that is, Bhagavan's physical eyes have that power to turn our attention back within. But we must yield ourselves to that. If we don't turn our attention within, under the powerful gaze of Bhagavan, and merge our, that, that is what he says in verse, 20, in verse 22 of Ulutanapdu, we need to, turning the mind back within and immersing it in that light. So we need to immerse ourselves in that light of pure awareness. So when we come under the, when Bhagavan's eyes look at us, when Bhagavan's physical eyes look at us, when Bhagavan looks at us through his physical eyes, let's say, that has the power to turn our mind back within. But to what extent do we yield ourselves to that? Unless we allow our mind to be turned within and to be swallowed by him, that's only a temporary benefit. So that's why people say, oh, Bhagavan, when I'm here in your presence, I feel so calm and I feel so peaceful. All my worldly worries go away. But when I return to my life, when I return to Delhi or Mumbai or Calcutta or wherever I come from, I, the, all the trolls come back again. That is because the, the Bhagavan's, the look of Bhagavan's physical eyes do have the power to turn our mind back within. But we have to yield ourselves to that. That is, our yielding ourselves to the look of his grace is what is most important. His grace has the power to pull our mind within. But we are constantly, His grace is always pulling our mind within. We are constantly resisting that and going outwards. So when Bhagavan's looked at us through the physical eyes of that body, that had the power to, at least to some extent, subdue the mind. So people sitting in the presence of Bhagavan, uh, being seen by Bhagavan, they felt a great peace. But was there, were there egos annihilated? Well, in some cases, ego may have been annihilated. But those whose egos were annihilated will not come back and say, oh, my ego was, Bhagavan looked at me and my ego was annihilated. Because who is the I to say, he looked at me. There's no me there. But when he looks at us and swallows us, there's no I remaining to say, he looked at me and I lost my ego. If, to say, I lost my ego, my ego was annihilated. There are actually people who say that. There are actually people who claim, I sat in Bhagavan's presence and he looked at me and my ego was annihilated. The very fact they say that betrays that there's no, if ego were really annihilated, there would be no I to say, I sat in his presence, he looked at me and my ego was annihilated. There's no, it's... The, the, the very fact that they say that shows the um, exposes the falsity of what they're saying. As Bhagavan says in Uludunapadu, to say, I have known myself or I have not known myself, both are equally ridiculous. To say I have not known myself is ridiculous because what we actually are always knows itself as it is. And we always know ourselves as I am. The problem is 
we know ourselves, but instead of knowing ourselves as we actually are, we know ourselves as something other than what we actually are. When we know ourselves as we actually are, what we actually are is the infinite ocean of pure awareness. To whom is that infinite ocean of pure awareness to say, I have lost my ego. My ego was annihilated by the look of Bhagavan. So people who, um, who talk about the power of Bhagavan's look, the majority of them, well, there are maybe some few exceptions, like Murugana. Murugana, of course, didn't talk about it, but in poetry, he expressed his experience. He expressed how... Um, well, Murugana, Murugana, what Murugana is writing about in his verses, he's not writing about himself. Unlike those people who say, um, I have attained self-realization by the grace of Ramana Maharshi or whatever... Unlike that, Murugana was just talking about the greatness of Bhagavan's grace. While talking about the greatness of Bhagavan's grace, he let slip what happened. That is, Bhagavan used the mind, speech, and body of Murugana to reveal how his grace works. So what Murugana says about this is something com completely different to these people who claim, I am self-realized, I became self-realized, I saw the I... There's some people who say, I saw the I thought disappear. I looked within and I saw the eye thought disappear. Who is the eye who saw the eye thought disappear? The eye thought is not an object, something that will, we can see disappear. If we, if, that is, as Bhagavan says in Uludun after verse 25 about ego, Tedinal autum pidicum, if sort it takes flight. That is, we seem to be ego so long as we're looking outwards. If we look within, is there any such thing as ego to be found? So who can see the disappearance of ego? In the view of pure awareness, which is what we actually are, there never was any ego. So pure awareness cannot see the disappearance of ego. And ego obviously can't see the disappearance of ego because it must be present in order to see its disappearance. So that's a logical contradiction. So to say, I saw the I thought disappear is patently absurd. But people who have a half-baked understanding of Bhagavan's teaching, they may have got some little experience in Bhagavan's teach in Bhagavan's presence. They may have felt some peace or something. But and they've taken without understanding the the depth of his teaching, the depth and subtlety of his teaching, they then begin to claim, I attain self-realization in the presence of Ramana Maharshi. Why I'm talking, there are actually such people, even there are one or two of them are still alive today who, is, who still claim, make claims like this, showing that they haven't understood Bhagavan's teachings at all. So Bhagavan's look is definitely very powerful, but it's up to us to yield ourselves to it. That is that if we, if we really yield ourselves, his eyes will turn our attention back towards ourselves and we will merge back into our source. So if we rise again to talk about it, then we haven't yet we 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 haven't yield, yielded ourselves completely to Bhagavan. That's why there were so many people who felt the power of Bhagavan's look, but that didn't that wasn't a per, the ultimate solution to their problem because they didn't they didn't yield themselves to that. So they rose again as ego. Thank you, but Michael. we shouldn't think, oh, they are very fortunate because they were there when Bhagavan was physically present. Bhagavan isn't physically present now. So uh, Bhagavan, we shouldn't think Bhagavan's grace is in any way less powerful 
or less available now than it was then. Because we need, that's why Bhagavan says in Guru Vajrakovai, what I referred to earlier, there's no greater and more vile sinner than one who who believes that the, uh, that the Jnana Guru is a human form. Though the Jnana Guru appears in human form, he is not that human form. So those, but nowadays there are people who say, you must have the living presence of a Guru. What do they mean by living presence of a Guru? They mean the physical presence of a Guru, because they take the Guru to be a body. But so such people, according to Bhagavan, are the worst of vile sinners. So those people who say the presence of a living guru is necessary, Bhagavan's own verdict on them is they're the worst of vile sinners. But yes. there, are, there are people who were with Bhagavan, some of them still alive today, who still talk like this. They've even written books. Books have been published of what they say. But this is not Bhagavan's way. Bhagavan is far deeper, far subtler than this. So his look does have tremendous power, but his look is the power of his look is not in any way limited to his physical form. He is ever looking at us. If we want to see that Bhagavan is always looking at us, we must look at him. And where can we find him? Only in our own heart. So to the extent to which we look within, we will see his look is always upon us. If we think Bhagavan's grace is not upon us, it's because we're not looking within, we're looking outwards. We can't find grace outside. Grace is only within ourselves. The power of Bhagavan's eyes, the look of Bhagavan's eyes, the physical eyes of Bhagavan, or the look, but that which looks through those physical eyes, that the power of that is to turn our mind within. So it's only to the extent to which our mind subsides do we experience the peace, um, the, the peace that is our own real nature. Thank you so much. Yeah. Mm. Thank you, Michael. Thank right. you, Sandy. Um, so with regards to verse 5, I see a um, record here that it was actually um, the translation of Srimad Bhagavadam, um, verse 1048-31. Ah, yes, yes. Um, and there is also mention here that Bhagavan composed this for Chalama. Um, could you tell that story behind it? Um, um, I have forgotten. I've forgotten. Maybe you know the story better than I do. I did some stories I remember, some stories I don't remember. Um, it was just mentioned in day by day that um, Chalama was. Um, was going to the school um, and she was reading this verse and so Bhagavan basically composed it for her you know yeah, that's right. sort of and there's another version elsewhere I guess what I thought is for historical well, context that's the trouble with stories about Bhagavan there's, yeah, exactly there's right. usually so many different versions of the same story why? because everyone People, nobody is seeing Bhagavan as he actually is. So everyone is seeing right. Bhagavan through their own eyes. So they're interpreting things and understanding things. When I first came to Ramanashram in the mid-1970s, there were still so many old devotees of Bhagavan, people who had lived uh, 30, 40, 50 years of Bhagavan were still around in those days. So sometimes I would hear a story from one devotee. And when talking to another devotee, I would mention it, and they'd say, no, 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 it wasn't like that. I was there. I saw it. It was like this. 
so I heard the two different versions of the story from two people who were both there at the same time, and both said the other person's version was wrong. So they, we, we, that's why we need to take all these stories with a pinch of salt. There are many sure. instructive, uh, many instructive points in those stories, but. Um, we 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 can't always be sure just because someone was there and reported it. They that's how they saw that incident. Someone else saw the same incident in a different way. What it what was the truth of that? Bhagavan alone can know. We cannot understand Bhagavan without being Bhagavan, and we cannot be Bhagavan without being swallowed by him, turning within and being swallowed completely by him. And then there's no one left to say, I have understood Bhagavan, or I have known myself. Um, so there is a comment. I, I recently saw um, one of the um, monks uh, um, of Ramakrishna order mentioned in one of the videos, uh, it was sent to me, that one of the criteria for a guru is that they should belong to a sampradaya. <laughs> Uh, can you comment on that, please? Um, Bhagavad, yes, that is the ordinary understanding. That is the ordinary understanding. That, that is every sampradaya. Sampradaya means tradition, like the, um, the Ramakrishna mission or the, the various Shankara Mats or the Gaudiya uh, Vaishnavism, what is nowadays called the Hare Krishna movement. They are all sampradayas, different traditions, and each sampradaya has its own uh, parampara. Or in the case of the Shankara sampradaya, there are several different um, paramparas. Parampara means a lineage of gurus. So if uh, the, the Shankaracharya of, of, um, of say, Srinagiri Mat, before he passes away, he will appoint a successor. His successor will become the next guru, and after him, the next successor. Um, so there are four main Shankara Mats and a fifth one, the, the, um, Kanchi. the, the Kanchi Mat, which actually isn't as ancient as the other ones, but is, um, it is several hundred years old. Um, and so it's... Not everyone recognizes the Kanji Mat, but particularly in Tamil Nadu, the Kanji Mat is very in, held in very high regard, particularly in the uh, smarter Brahmin community. But anyway, these are these are different paramparas. Why is a parampara necessary? If a guru is a person, when that person passes away then the guru has passed away. So the guru needs to appoint a successor. But Bhagav what Bhagavan has taught us about the real nature of the guru is something far deeper than this. According to Bhagavan, guru is not a person. Guru is, he says in the first sentence of the, um, of the, the first sentence of the 12th paragraph of Nana, kadavalam guruvam God and Guru are in truth not different. Can we say of any God, oh, that God is not a proper God because he doesn't belong to a parampara? Can we say, oh, Shiva, what parampara does Lord Shiva belong to? He doesn't belong to a parampara, so he's not qualified to be God. Obviously, that's meaningless. There's only one God, and God is eternal. So no 
no parampara of God is necessary. Likewise, no parampara of Guru is necessary because Guru is the eternal reality. Guru is not something outside ourselves. In that 12th paragraph, Bhagavan said, Kadavalam Guruvam Unmail Varala. People take this very superficially. Oh, yes, every person who says, I am God, or, I, mean, I am Guru, will also say, I am God, and expect people to worship them. Not every Tom, Dick, and Harry is God. That is, so long as ego is, the, of course, the ultimate reality, God alone exists. So we are none of us other than God. Uh, so we are all ultimately God in our real nature. But so long as we rise as ego, we seem to separate ourselves from God. So I can't go around saying, I, Michael, am God. That That's absurd. <laughs> Michael is just an insignificant little entity but was born a few years ago and a few years hence will be dead and occupies a tiny little space in time and space. Um, so obviously Michael isn't God. But I am shining through each one of us. That is God. So Bhagavan not only said God and Guru are one, he also said... Um, he often used to say, uh, God, Guru, and Self are one. What he means by Self there is not our Self as this little ego. He means our Self as we actually are. So uh, God, a Guru, is nothing other than our own real nature. So God is ever shining in our heart as I. He is eternal. It's a, a guru is eternal. So why, so long as you have a parampara of Guru, your, your, that is the, the very idea of a parampara, the very idea of the necessity of a parampara is based upon the wrong notion the guru is mortal, the guru is a person who will die. So that is not what the, that's not the real guru. Of course, the term guru is used in a very ordinary sense. If you want to learn a musical instrument, you go to a music teacher, your music teacher is your guru. In the Mahabharata, Dronacharya was a guru. What was he teaching? He taught the Pandavas and all the others. He taught the archery. So that is guru in a very ordinary sense of a teacher. But when Bhagavan is talking about a guru, he's talking of it in the very highest sense. So in the very highest sense of guru, no parampara is... I mean, parampara is meaningless. How can you have a parampara of that which is eternal? Parampara means a lineage. There, there cannot be any lineage for guru. So, so long as a guru is a guru within a lineage, that is not the real guru. Yeah. Such gurus, they all serve a function. That is, the Shankaracharyas and the Shankaramats, they all serve a, a certain socio-religious function. So, and these different... Gurus at different levels. So these gurus who belong to paramparas, they will teach some good religious, some good principles and uh, how to live a good life and how what sadhana to do, all these all at a very ordinary level. But, but what, Bhagavan is not a guru in that sense. That's why Bhagavan never... Um, if, at all, if at all Bhagavan talks about a form of guru, his, the form of his guru was Arunachala. He clearly says in Aksharam Lai, Kutra Mutraritani Gunamai Panital Guru Guru Vayali Arunachala. Uh, Arunachala, who shine as the form of guru, um, take me as your own, completely eradicating my defects and giving me all good qualities. 
or making me one endowed with all good qualities. So uh, that is the function of guru. That cannot be done by any person. That can only be done by the by by God Himself. So God alone is the guru. So Bhagavan is God in human form. Lord Arunachya Shiva himself appeared in the form of Bhagavan. But to give respect to the convention of a, having a guru, Bhagavan pointed to Arunachya as his guru. But since Arunachya is going, going to outlive all of us, we have no need to worry about any part. Even <laughs> if we want a form, we've got but that form Arunachya is going to be there long, long after we're gone. So no need for any paramparas. Arunachya exactly. doesn't have to have little little mountains to, to take over from him. It's, it's right. not necessary. So when I saw that, um, you know, the... Um, but um, what that uh, person said, that's true from their perspective. Right. Their understanding of guru, that's perfectly true. But Bhagavan is not a guru like that. Bhagavan is a guru far more exalted than anything like that. And what he taught us about the, the true nature of guru, or the nature of the true guru, is something far more refined than this ordinary understanding of a guru parampara. Right. So when I saw that, I was like lately shocked. And this is coming from a prominent monk of you know, the Ramakrishna order, because if Swami Vivekananda applied the criteria, he would not have accepted Ramakrishna as his guru. Because Ramakrishna was... Yeah, 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 exactly, exactly. <laughs> so so that is that no, but, is totally but, rejected. No, but they can, they can justify that. Every parampara has to have a starting point. Right. Well, but, Shankara had a guru. and go, Who was Godapada's guru? Does anyone know who Godapada's guru was? So, um, <laughs> Godapada was the... Uh, that is, Shankara's guru was Govindapada. Govindapada's guru was Godapada. Nobody, there's no record of who is Godapada. We can say, oh, no, no, there was a, a long line before him. <laughs> who knows? But right. uh, even if you have a parampara, it has to start somewhere. So uh, they, they can justify their point of view by saying Shank, uh, Ramakrishna Paramahamsa started a parampara. So started with Ramakrishna and then Devakananda and then all the presidents of the Mutt, I suppose, are, are what they take as, the, um, as their parampara. That's fine. It's okay at their right. level. But I'm not um, sure what uh, Shankara, but, um, but, um, but Ramakrishna Paramahamsa would have subscribed to this. Or another justification um, they can say is he took initiation from Totapuri. And Totapuri belonged to the to the Puri line of sannyasis. That's why all the the um, the monks of the Ramakrishna mission they all belong to the Puri sampradaya. So, so there are so there many has, ways of justifying this. We can but, justifying it, but there has to be a starting point. There has to be I mean, a starting point. And, there has um, to be a starting point, right? <laughs> so it's not a valid. Um, I mean, it's fine reason. at its own level. It's fine at its yeah, own level. But, its own level. Yeah. So um, the next question um, is, um, so we talked about in modern terms, like, you know, the guru, uh, while we're on this topic, um, I mean, associating with Sat is um, Shravana Manana and Nididashana. And then the next point is, um, what exactly do we read? And And you pointed out the difference between uh, the recorded works of Bhagavan versus the original works of Bhagavan. 
Um, now let's go one step further. Um, what commentaries on the original works would you um, recommend and, and why? Without any shadow of doubt, Sadhu Om's commentaries. Um, Murugana, unfortunately, I mean, Murugana wrote a commentary on Aksharamulai. That is very, very special, but that's the only work on which he wrote a commentary. So for Aksharamulai, we got Murugana's commentary. Um, even though there's a partial commentary by Sadhuam, but even that wasn't actually written by Sadhuam. It was based on notes that he had left and on explanations that he had given me. So um, up to 44. Up to 44, yes. Yeah. So that was mainly based on my memory of explanations that I had heard him give, um, together with notes which helped to jog my memory. Um, uh, but for works like Uludunapadu Upadesha India, the best commentaries we have are Sadwam's commentaries. But unfortunately, they're in Tamil. They haven't yet been translated into English. That may happen someday. I right. I don't think there'll ever be time in my lifetime for me to translate those things, but others will come and translate them. Right. We'll work on it. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, thank you, Michael. So with that, um, I think we have... Um, so if not, I'm going to, so we'll just close out and then we'll just go to uh, other topics. Um, uh, yeah. um, I had, I had uh, one question. So yes, Mira, go ahead. I typed it. Yeah. Uh, okay. I'm going to read it. Um, so transaction during waking creates Zaya Vashanas, which makes us do more actions. Um, at the same time, creates com comparison side effects, agitated mind, and the ego is reinforced. So, can the mind be taught to look up the world of transaction um, as such it? Anything that arises from such it is such it, then um, during transactions, vasanas may not be created, isn't it? Then the mind is less agitated, and then it is easier to look within when the mind is not agitated. It is okay to do. What becomes worship then, isn't it? So what the first, first point is that, that, that transactions during our waking state creates the Vishayavasanas, which makes us do more actions. Okay, can, um, I, can I say something there? Right. We can't exactly say the transactions creates the Vasanas. That is, the Vasanas are what are driving us to do actions. Fresh Vasanas may be... Uh, may arise out of association. I can give an example of this. Vasanas, of course, are something very, very subtle, but I'll give an example at a, at an, an analogy. Supposing we are very interested in Bhagavan's teachings. So we have a desire to understand Bhagavan's teachings more, more deeply. That may give rise to an interest to learn Tamil. We may have had no interest to learn Tamil at all, but because Bhagavan wrote his teachings in Tamil, that may give rise to an interest to learn Tamil. And we start learning Tamil, and the more we learn Tamil, the more we're interested, because the more we understand Bhagavan's teaching. So that, that interest in Tamil, that, uh, that desire to know more Tamil, that arises. This is, of course, at a very gross level, but that is how one interest or one desire can spawn other, um, can give rise to other uh, interests and desires. Uh, 
this is just an, an example of that. Vasanas work in the same way. Vasana is actually the, the seeds of those interests, the seeds of those desires, the seeds of all those things. That is, interests, desires, likes, dislikes in their seed form are what are called vasanas. So vasanas work in the same way. So we all, um, at any given moment in time, we all have a certain set of vasanas. And our vasanas pull us in different directions. Because vasanas, as Bhagavan said, they come from time immemorial. So we'll have all sorts of conflicting uh, vasanas. Uh, another analogy we can give, a very simple analogy. Um, there are many people who smoke. But nowadays, it's very widely known that smoking is bad for your health. So now it's, there are many people who, though they smoke, they would like to give up smoking. They like to smoke and they like to give up smoking. They like to smoke because it's what they're used to and they've, they've, they've cultivated that inclination to smoke. So whenever they're feeling a little restless or something, they like to take out a cigarette and, and light up and whatever. But at the same time, they're concerned about their health. They want to remain healthy, to live long and to live a healthy life. So they don't want to spoil their health by smoking. So there are two, there are two sets of vasanas there. There's the inclination to smoke and the inclination to be healthy. These are pulling in different directions. So vasanas are like this. We have so many vasanas we have... Uh, that we have cultivated in the past, they pull us in different directions. So how do vasanas gain strength or lose strength? Vasanas have no strength of their own. Whatever strength a vasana has is a strength it has derived from us. So to the extent to which we allow ourselves to be swayed by any vasana, that vasana is weakened. Sorry, that vasana is strengthened. And to the extent to which we avoid being swayed by a vasana, it is weakened. So, for example, if we've been smoking for the last 40 years, giving up smoking is obviously not easy because we've got a very strong vasana in that, uh, um, in that direction. But by, by, a, by a strong willpower, we can say, no, I shouldn't, I shouldn't succumb to this. So we can refrain from however strong that vasana may be. Remember, vasanas are just inclinations. Vasanas can never force us to do anything. Or we can't say, oh, I did this because I was compelled by my vasanas. No, the vasanas cannot compel us. The vasanas are inclinations. Under the sway of vasanas, we feel inclined to do something. So if we've been smoking for the past 40 years, we will have a strong inclination to smoke. That doesn't mean we have to smoke. We can resist that inclination. So if we, if we are firm with ourselves and decide, I will not, from now onwards, I will not be swayed by this inclination. So we allow, the, we allow ourselves to be swayed by the opposite inclination, the inclination to refrain from smoking, to take care of our health or whatever. Slowly, slowly, that inclination with smoke to smoke will decrease. And the inclination to refrain from smoking will increase. Many people who in the past have smoked and later gave up smoking, they say after a year or two of smoking, they find the very thought of smoking, they find, um, they find very uh, 
it, it's something very, 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 if smoking really disgusts them, what they had so much liking for in the past, because they refused to be swayed by that vasana and were swayed by an opposite vasana, they get, they, in the end, it, 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 they actually have a strong aversion for smoking. They feel very uncomfortable if someone else is smoking in their presence. So this is how vasanas work. So vasanas are not fixed. Though they come from time immemorial, they're constantly changing. So depending on which vasanas we allow ourselves to be swayed by, those vasanas will be strengthened and other vasanas which we don't allow ourselves to be swayed by will be weakened. So in this process, as I say, vasanas also give rise to associated vasanas. So, if, for example, if we have an inclination to know, understand Bhagavan teaching more clearly and more deeply, we may develop an inclination to try to understand how Bhagavan expressed it in the original Tamil. That can give rise to, if we allow ourselves to be swayed by that, it will give rise to a liking to learn Tamil and we will learn Tamil and so on. So, but the Vasanas, um, Vasanas can spawn associated Vasanas. That is, we're not exactly, in a sense, we're creating them, but it's more, it's 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 easier to think of it in terms of spawning, uh, like uh, it's procreating rather than creating. Fish fish um, procreate by spawning; they lay lots of eggs, um, and those eggs become little fish. So we are. Uh, one vasana can spawn other vasanas, but the, the the important point is vasanas gain their strength from us. So no vasana is stronger than us. Often we, because we we have allowed ourselves in the past to be swayed by our vasanas, we we may have seemed to have become a slave of our vasanas, but. We can always free ourselves from that slavery by not allowing ourselves to be swayed by them. It may be difficult. Obviously, if you've got a very strong vasana, it's not easy to avoid being swayed by that vasana. But by this is what spiritual practice is all about. In the case of Atma Vichara, attending to anything other than the inclination to attend to anything other than ourselves is a Vishaya Vasana. The opposite of Vishaya Vasanas are Sat Vasana the inclination to attend to our own being and thereby to be as we actually are. So to the extent to which we turn within, we are strengthening the satvasana. If we had no satvasana, we wouldn't be inclined to turn within at all. But by Bhagavan's grace, he has sown that seed of satvasana in our heart. So we have an inclination at least to try to turn within. The more we turn within, the more the satvasana is strengthened and the vishaya vasanas are weakened. This is why Bhagavan says, or he implies in verse 8 to Rupadeshundia, but all the means to purify the mind, anatinam utamam, the best among all is Atmavichara. In that verse, what he refers to Atmavichara indirectly by describing it as Ananya Bhava. Ananya Bhava in that context means meditating on what is not other. So what is not other than ourself? Only ourself is not other than ourself. So Ananya Baba means self-attentiveness. And Bhagavan says that is the best among all. In what context does he say it's best among all? We need to go back to verse 3. In verse 3 he says, action done without desire 
but for the love of God, or but for God, he says, in the Malayalam version, he says he makes it feel clearer by saying for the love of God, that's the implication. So the actions we do, instead of being motivated by desire for gaining something from that action, just we do it for the love of God, such action will purify the mind and show the way to liberation. So what are the actions we can do for the love of God? He then uh, uh, elaborates upon this in the subsequent verses. In verse 4, he says, um, uh, Puja, Japa, and Dhyana are actions of, of, uh, of body, speech, and mind. And in this order, each one is superior to the previous one. So um, more effective than puja is japa. More effective than japa is dhyana, because puja is done by the body, which is relatively gross. Japa is done by the speech, which is more subtle. Dhyana is done by the mind, which is more subtle. Um, but he gives a broad, then in verse 5, he gives a broad definition of puja. Puja isn't only the ritualistic puja in the temple. All... If, all the forms, all the eight, all the forms of the world are forms of God. It's referred to as eight forms, the eight forms of the five elements of which all material and mental things are said to be composed, and the sun, moon, and jivas. So basically, eight, the, the Ashtamurti, the eight forms of God, include the whole universe. So the whole universe is God. So if, for example, you, um, you try to reduce your ecological footprint, for the love of God, that is good worship of God. So if you try to, to not to, uh, pollute more, not to, um, in any way, trying to reduce your ecological footprint, your carbon footprint, if you're doing that for the love of God, if you're doing that because you recognize all this um, human activity is causing so much harm in the world in the form of this uh, uh, climate change, so to avoid causing that harm, since this world is given to us by God, we should take uh, we should take we should treat it with due respect. We should have concern for all the other creatures, all the other humans and animals in this world who are all being we're all being adversely affected by this climate change. So, for on the principle of ahimsa, we should try to minimize our uh, our ecological footprint. If we are doing that for the love of God, not because of if if I. If I do my recycling and if I avoid unnecessary uh, travel and so on, it's not doing me any good directly, but I'm doing it for the love of God. Uh, if you're doing it with that, according to Bowen, Isan Nal Pusane, that's good worship of God. So he gives a very broad definition of puja. Um, and then he talks about japa. He talks about the better than singing hymns of praise is japa. Better than japa done aloud is japa whispered softly within the mouth. Better when japa whispered softly in the mouth, japa done mentally is good. And that is dhyana. And better than that is then uh, uh, dhyana. In verse 7, he talks about dhyana. He said better than interrupted meditation, uninterrupted meditation is better. Because if our mind, if we really have love for God, when we meditate on God, we will not start thinking about other things. If I sit down to to meditate on, on uh, say, the name or form of Bhagavan, and then I begin to think about um, how I'm going to pay my bills this month or um, when is the next, um, well, what problem I'm going to face tomorrow, how I'm going to solve this problem, how I'm going If I start thinking about my worldly problems, I'm more concerned about my worldly problems than I'm concerned about Bhagavan. So that shows my love is, is uh, 
it's it, it's still uh, deficient. So uninterrupted meditation on a name or form of God shows the intensity of our love for God. That's why that is better. So up to verse 7, he's talking about karma. He's talking about actions, actions of body, speech, and mind, and how each one is more effective in purifying the mind. Then in verse 8, he says, rather than anyabhava, Anyabhava means meditation on what is other. In the context, it implies rather meditating on God as something other than ourselves. If we're meditating on a name or form of God, that name or form is something other than ourselves. So we're meditating on that's Anyabhava. But if we understand that He is I, but He is that which is shining in our heart as I, and therefore instead of meditating on Him as something other than ourselves, we meditate on as nothing other than ourselves. In other words, if we meditate on ourselves alone, that is the best among all. But whereas all the previous forms of meditation, of, of puja, japa, and jnana, they were all actions, meditating on ourselves is not an action, it is a cessation of action. And this, he says, is the best among all. When he says it's the best among all, the implication is among all the, these various different types of practice, this is the most effective way to purify the mind. Why is it the most effective way to purify the mind? Because the impurities in the mind of a Vishaya Vasanas, under the stay of our Vishaya Vasanas, our mind goes outwards. If we don't allow the mind to go outwards but turn it back within, we are strengthening the Satvasana and weakening the Vishaya Vasana. So this is the most effective way to purify the mind. If you meditate on, with love on a name or form of God, you are thereby weakening the Vishaya Vasanas to think about other things. But even the God, your the name or form of God is still a Vishaya, it's still something other than yourself. So it is a very effective way to purify the mind, but not as effective as this Atma Vichara. That's why Bhagavan says, of all, this is the best. Thank and you, he Michael. says, by the strength of that meditation, that leads to um that leads to us just being in the state of uh in our in our in Satbhava, the state of being, being in the state of being, that Bhagavan says is Parabhakti Tattva. That is the, the nature of supreme devotion. So I, yeah. why I said this, this is to clarify about the nature of Vasanas. Mm -hmm. So we're not exactly, we are creating in a sense, but it's not the, we are spawning new Vasanas yeah. while allowing ourselves to be swayed by the old Vasanas. Yeah. But Vasanas are the cause of our doing the actions, yeah. and that's why they tend to spawn more Vasanas. Yeah. And Thank they, you so much. Yeah, but I think there was more to your question than that. So, uh, Kumar, <laughs> can you read read more? No, I just meant, um, so if, if, oh. I, if I know the truth of myself is uh, is uh, um, Satchit, then the truth of in, everything else is the same Satchit. So the whole world can be looked upon as Satchit. So, Sachet, so no, the, no, you the, cannot look uh, upon you cannot look upon the world as Satchit. Okay, so long as you ego. see the world, you are not seeing Satchit. <coughs> you can say you can look upon the snake as a rope, but to, so long as you see it as a snake, the idea that it is a rope is just an idea. You're still yeah. afraid of it because for you it's still a snake. You can imagine to yourself, oh, this snake is a rope. 
But if a snake suddenly rears up and opens its hood, if then you're not you're not going to be your idea that it's a rope is going to be a very weak idea. So we need to actually see. Uh, we cannot see other things as such it without seeing ourselves as such it. Right. When we right. see ourselves as such it, there will be no other things to be seen as such it. So there are no other things. There are no other things because other things appear only in the view of ego. Yeah, yeah. When we see ourselves as such it, we are not the ego is thereby destroyed. So that is what is meant by seeing the world as God or seeing the world as self. Seeing nothing other than self alone is seeing the world as so we see Bhagavan we <coughs> Bhagavan sees this world as himself. We see him as this world. So we are not seeing him as he actually is. Or we're not seeing ourselves as we actually are, because he is what we actually are. Yeah. Thank you so much. Right. Thank you, right. Thank you Michael. Um, so, Rajat asked a question. Um, in Arunachala Mahatmyam, as in the first was discussed today, Arunachala is described as a wish-fulfilling tree. But Bhagavan has said very clearly that what is to happen will happen and what is not to happen will not happen. So should we understand that the description in the scriptures is purely metaphorical? Um, that is, what is taught in the scriptures is to suit people at different levels of spiritual development. So at a certain level of spiritual development, people go to um, go to temples and churches and mosques and gurudwaras and so on, and synagogues and so on. They go praying for to God for all sorts of things. If you tell them, oh, your prayers won't have any effect, what is destined to happen alone will happen, they're not going to go to their church. I mean, if they believe you, they're, not, they're going to stop going to their churches and mosques and uh, temples and so on. So they have to be told, yes, if you have difficulties in life, pray to God. And God will, God, that is the prarabdha, the destiny of each one of us is tailor-made to suit our present level of spiritual development. So if we're at the level of spiritual development, but we're still inclined to pray for God, to God, for this or for that, for health, wealth, uh, removal of all problems and so on, he will allot, he will have designed our prayer up there in such a way that it seems to us, I had such and such a difficulty, I prayed to God, and God removed my difficulty. It is good for them to believe that because the more they believe that, the more trust they will have in God, the more love they will have in God. And slowly, slowly, their love for God will begin to love supplant their love for Bishayas. That is, if we if we go to temple or to church or to mosque or to synagogue or to Gurudwara or wherever, if we go just to pray for material things, what we what we have love for is not God. Uh, we have love for the material things. God is just a means to an end. So we worship God, 
So long as God gives us what we want, we we uh, we worship Him. If He doesn't give us what we want, oh, how God! What sort of God is He? He's uh, He's not been gracious to me. So at a certain level in spiritual development, Bhagavan had that God designs the prarabdhi in such a way to to um, strengthen people's love. They strengthen their, their, sorry, strengthen their faith. The more they have faith in God, the more they feel God is taking care of everything. Whatever I ask God for, he does for me. Then they, they begin to develop a real love for God, not the love for what they can get from God. But if, if, if the giver is so great, so if the giver is giving me whatever I want, surely the giver is greater than all these gifts. Sadhuam has sung a song. Kodu tabum perida, inda kodu porul perida. Which is greater, the giver or the things that are given? So obviously the giver is greater obviously than whatever is given. Yeah. So that maturity comes to the mind as a result of people praying and seemingly having their prayers answered. So if someone has likes to go to temples or churches or whatever and pray to God for this or that, we shouldn't discourage them. In the Bhagavad Gita, it is said, uh, you shouldn't disturb the faith of those who have, who have, who have faith in karmas and actions. So we, you, we should encourage them. Yes, it's good, good to go to church every Sunday. It's good to go to the mosque every Friday. It's good to go to the temple on whichever day you want to go to the temple. Uh, it's all this should be encouraged. And Bhagavan encouraged people when people came to Bhagavan when they were at that level. He would encourage them. <clears throat> so, but yes, once we come to Bhagavan, we should had the maturity to understand that praying for material things is useless. Because Bhagavan, uh, whatever we experience is what is allotted to us by Bhagavan for our own good. So he knows what is best for us. Nangarindu um, uh, Sadhuam sings in another song. What do I need and what do I not need? More than me, my Lord knows. Is that Epidioralvai? No. Enavenda. Yes, Epidioralvai is the same thing. Epidioralvai. Adu evidum nanarivain. That is, he knows what is best. So let him, let Bhagavan bestow his grace in whatever way he wants, because he knows what is best. So that is the maturity we should come to. That is the level at which Bhagavan's teachings are, uh, 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 the, the pure teachings of Bhagavan should be, um, enable us to understand that. So that's why Bhagavan tells us, Whatever is to happen is going to happen. Whatever is not going to happen is not going to happen. Try as much as you may. So um, that leads to a higher level of devotion, where the highest devotion is self-surrender. But people who are going to, and praying to God for this or for that, they're not, they're not surrendering themselves to God's will. They're asking God to fulfill their will. So there are different levels of spiritual development. So different teachings are appropriate at different levels. That's why Bhagavan said to, um, to Swami Yogananda, teachings, spiritual teachings cannot be given en masse. 
what, what the deeper teachings Bhagavan has given us, we shouldn't tell these teachings to others who are obviously not at this level. If people really want to know, if they're ready to learn something, then we can tell about Bhagavan's teachings. But we shouldn't of our own accord go and tell people. Uh, thank you, Michael. If people um, are praying to God for this or that, we shouldn't tell them, oh, no, no, it's all according to Pararabdha. We say, no, no, it's good to pray to God. Of course it's good to pray. Because at least when they're praying of God, their to God, their mind is directed towards God. That will gradually, gradually purify their mind. Right. And it grows through that five standards of bhakti. Uh, yeah, exactly, Swami, exactly. Swami That's what Sadhwam yeah. has explained it very beautifully in uh, the path of Sri Ramana. Um, Sai Kumar is, um, um, is asking a question, actually. Um, he says, please explain how to experience the meaning of the words from Upadesa Sara. And he is quoting verse 5 of Upadesa Sara. Jagata Ishaddi Yukta Sevanam Ashtamurtibra Deva Poojanam. So you did talk about this briefly while responding to Mira. Yes. Um, so Sai Kumar, is there anything more you would like? It is a bhavana. If you consider yeah. the world as God, that is a bhavana. It is good to have that bhavana. If you see a hungry person and you, you have food and you give food to that person, rather than seeing, oh, this is a poor wretch and I'm helping him. I'm, um, when I was in, um, when I was in um, Badrinath, before I came to Tiruvannamalai, I traveled around a lot of India. When I was in Badrinath, I met one very rich uh, lawyer from Allahabad, from Prayag. He told me, his, he and his family, every year they come to Badrinath and they feed sadhus there. And on one day he did a big feeding of, he, he gave money for feeding so many sadhus. And he was talking to me while the sadhus were eating. And he said, see, because I'm doing this, this punya, I'm going to have a very good, I'm going to go to heaven, or I'm going to have a very good uh, uh, afterlife. But see how these sadhus are eating. They're eating like pigs. So what is going to become of them? I was horrified. <laughs> I, that is not the attitude. If you're feeding a hungry person, you shouldn't be considering they're eating like a pig. They may be very hungry. They may not have eaten, so they may be eating with great relish. We shouldn't look down and think, oh, they're eating like pigs. No, we should look down. We should look upon them as God. We should think, God has come in the poor form of this poor person. My giving food to God, to, to them, is an opportunity for me to do service to God. That is the attitude we should do it. Of course, that's just an attitude. It's a bhavana. Um, but that attitude is the attitude we should have when we, when we do service of any sort. That is the difference in nishkamiya. Uh, karma and karmia karma. That is that rich lawyer. He, why he was feeding those sadhus so that he can go to heaven. He's not doing it for the love of God. He's doing it pure karmiata. So that that is not the that's not what Bhagavan is talking about. Bhagavan says, "Kartuna karkam nishkarmia karma." So you're you're not to do the action for any going to heaven or anything like that or for any gain of any sort, you have to do it just for the love of God. For God's sake alone, you do it. So if you feed a poor person, you should feed that poor person, considering that poor person to be God. 
and considering you should be grateful for God has come in that form of that poor person and given you the opportunity to feed him. So we should be very humble. We should be we should take that, we should take it as a blessing of God, but he has given us this opportunity to feed him in the form of that poor person. So, Saikumar, does that uh, answer your question? Um, I know it's a, you know, you talked about a whole verse, so there's a lot to talk about there. So, yeah, I want to make sure your, yeah. your, your doubts are clarified there. Yeah, the more I, when we read scriptures or teachings of Bhagavan, I clearly see uh, how you perceive the right attitude brings right experience, right? So, I'm thinking that's in essence uh, true for everything, even. Uh, scientific knowledge gives you a better understanding of the world and social life gives you better responsibility. Uh, so everything is uh, is an experience based on right knowledge. So here, when Bhagavan says, you have to look at the whole world as your puja room and offer your prayers, uh, one way to think is the superimpose God, which means I'm intellectually trying to uh, see God in everything which may not happen every time because I'm busy, busy with other things. So what is the right attitude that makes it more practical to see the world itself as a puja room and offer your prayers? Yeah, yeah, exactly. So I, see I thought, see, uh, see like, the world as God. You don't even have to see it as the puja room. That Everything in this world is God. All the, Ash sure. the, the Ashtamurti means all the Panchabuddhas are God. The, the the sun is God, the moon is God, the jivas are God. So where is any world apart from these things? So Bhagavan is saying we should look upon the whole world as God. Uh, Kumar, so can I just add uh, to uh, just a few seconds? Uh, in the Tamil verse, equivalent verse, Mubade Sondiyar, it says, Yenuru yavum, irayuru amenai yenni, varipadal undi para. Bhagavan explicitly says, you can think the world as God, and if you do, you will end up worshipping the world. So, which means if you are feeding the sadhus, you are not going to see the sadhus as pigs <laughs> hugging all the fruit. Instead, you will be praying to them, you will be worshipping them. That means for giving an opportunity to, to be able to feed them is what you are worshipping them for. So any very badal undi para is what, what is said in the Tamil verse. So yes. it's that is it's considering in the Sanskrit. Um, what what is it? Um, what is the Sanskrit verse again? Jagata isa di. That d is the equivalent of that any considering it. And in Tamil, there's another nice underlying meaning there. That is enuru has can be interpreted in two ways. Enuru can mean eight forms. En also, also means thoughts. thought. So the whole yeah. world is nothing but thoughts. Thought. And it's all, but it's all a form of God. This world which is imposed on nothing but thought, we should look upon it as a form of God and worship it accordingly. So right. if you extend that, even the thoughts which arise in your mind are actually providing an opportunity to, to do to be in self-investigation. Because when the thought arises, you are going to do the self-investigation or you're going to abide in the self. So you can worship that thought. Well, so, the, you can take the thought as a reminder, 
That is, that thought couldn't arise if you didn't exist there to know it. So the yeah. thought should remind us of our own existence. That's what so 13, we, verse number 13 says that even Ajnanam, even Ajnanam cannot exist without Jnanam. Yes, yes. So, so in other words, a thought cannot arise without your existence. Yeah, yeah. But the trouble is we, we are more interested in the thoughts than our existence. And so the things. thoughts distract us. But if we take the thoughts as, why Bhagavan has given me this thought? To remind me what I am. So let me turn my, let us ignore the thoughts and turn our attention back to ourselves. Correct. So instead of, uh, uh, instead of uh, deriding the sadhus, the thoughts, yeah. sadhus, which are equivalent yeah. to thoughts, we'll be yeah. worshipping the sadhus, or you'll yeah. be using yeah. the opportunity of the thought to, to investigate existence yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. thank you um and um that's hopeful that answers um Mars question and bruce asks why should we frame or worship when it can be god who frames it i'm not quite sure what that what you mean yeah, by that bruce. i mean neither so bruce <laughs> you want to explain it well it, that it, it like a bhavana is an imaginative projection, right? Oh yeah. So if we're framing our worship, that is a bhavana. Whereas if we allow God to formulate our worship, it's removing the bhavana. It's we're not, you know, fighting yeah. the projection. Yeah, that that is bhavanas are suitable at a certain stage. So long as our mind is going outwards. It's good to look upon the world as God. But better than considering the world to be God, recognizing that God is that which is shining in our heart as I, and worshipping him as I by turning our attention within and surrendering ourselves, thereby surrendering ourselves to him. That is why Bhagavan says in verse 9, after that verse where he talks about the Ananya Baba, he says in the next verse, Baba Balatinal, by the strength of the Baba, that implied by the strength of the Ananya Baba, by the strength of the self-attentiveness, in other words. Yes. Bhavana Tita Sat Baba Tirutale. Being in that Sat Baba, that state of being, which transcends all Bhavana, that is the that is the Parabhakti. That is the Parabhakti Tattva. That's the very nature of supreme devotion. So, of course, we have to go beyond Bhavana. But that doesn't mean Bhavana is inappropriate at a certain stage. Right. So long as our mind is going outwards, it's good to have a Bhavana, this is all God, and to, to look upon the world as God. It's only a Bhavana, but it's better than um, looking upon the world in any other way. Right. It gives, us, it gives us respect yeah. for all, even for, even for those we who seem to us... To be bad, those we we have an inclination to dislike. Bhagavan says we shouldn't dis. However bad people others may appear to be, disliking them is not proper. Because he said beautifully in the nineteenth paragraph of Nana, there are not two minds: a good mind and a bad mind. Mind is only one. In other words, mind is neutral. It's the vasanas which are of two kinds, subhavasanas and asubhavasanas. Subhavasanas means the good, agreeable vasanas. Uh, asubha means the disagreeable ones. So when the mind is under the sway of 
Subhavasana, as we say, it's a good mind. When it's under the sway of a subhavasana, as we say, it's a bad mind. So however bad others may appear to be, disliking them is not proper. Likes and dislikes should both are both fit to be disliked. So having the bhavana that all this is God helps us to go beyond the likes and dislikes, to, to view everything with a neutral uh, um, that is uh, um, um, that that is impartial view, treating the good and the bad all equally. That doesn't mean treating good people as bad people, but treating the bad people, uh, having respect for them, as, as you know, that is being concerned for their well-being. Thank you, Michael. Yeah. Um, last question from Ram. So, Michael, um, um, good morning from US. Morning. Um, so, when when I'm doing the self investigation, it's very clear that I'm not the mind and I'm not the body. Uh, that is, mind is uh, when I sit down, mind turns inwards, uh, and I I I can I guess for the lack of better words, experience that I'm not the body and I'm not the mind. It's not a, a, a just a statement. I can, uh, but then uh, I'm 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 not sure where it goes from there. It's not that I'm waiting for the next thought to come, but I'm when I try to investigate further, saying who who is this? It's, it's again not a question. I'm investigating okay. who is it. Then. I'm I'm not sure uh, how to proceed from there. That is, we are not by looking within. We are not actually. We we are beginning to become aware of ourselves as something distinct from this body and mind. But we still experience this body and mind as ourselves. So we need to look within more and more to get more and more clarity. The more clarity we get, clarity means the clarity of self-awareness, clarity of that awareness of ourself as something distinct from all these things. So we we do not experience ourselves as not this body or not this mind until ego is completely annihilated, because the very nature of ego is to identify itself with this bundle of five sheaths called body, and that includes the mind. But the more we look within, the more we begin to recognize that our existence is something separate from these things. But it's a, it's only a it's only vague, it's a vague clarity we get. It becomes clearer to the extent to which we go within, but it becomes fully clear only when we lose ourselves completely in that infinite clarity of pure being. Till then we basically spend uh, more and more focusing inward yes, till yes. we get that uh, clarity. Yeah. We're not waiting for anything to happen because anything that happens is unreal because things that happen uh, appear and disappear. We are just trying to see more and more clearly what actually exists. What actually exists is such it, that, that ever-shining existence I am. So we just dwell on that more and more. The more we dwell on that, the more we subside into that. And eventually we will dissolve into that. So we're not looking for anything dramatic happening. 
Yeah. Okay. And then when when uh, Bhagwan was answering the questions or actually doing that, mm. who who was he um, talking to? I mean, he was talking to the people, obviously, but he is beyond the duality, isn't it? So yes, why yes. was he even that talking? That is, we see Bhagavan as that. What was talking? It wasn't Bhagavan. It's the body that is talking. We take it that body to be Bhagavan, so we say Bhagavan is talking. But Bhagavan oh. explained these things in several ways. Once when someone asked Bhagavan, Bhagavan, when we ask you questions, where does the answer come from? Bhagavan said, the answer arises from the same source as the questions. <laughs> okay. Right. So it, Bhagavan is, though he appears to us outwardly in human form, he is actually that which is shining in our heart. And another, another very nice example we Bhagavan gave, that is, in the later years, someone bought a, a radio. In those days, they called them wirelesses. And this wireless was installed in the old hall. They didn't uh, listen to all things, but occasionally, they, if there was a classical music concert or something was on the radio, on the wireless, they would switch it on and they all would listen to that. And one day after listening to some uh, concert of classical music, of devotional music, when it was all over, Bhagavan said, see, we've just been listening to this beautiful singing coming from this box. But if we open this box up, we won't find anyone inside because the, the the sound we are hearing is not is just relayed through that box, but it's coming from another source. It's coming from the, the recording state, the studio or the concert hall or wherever it was recorded. Um, <clears throat> likewise, the body of Banyani. Though the body of Vinyani may seem to talk and respond to your questions and everything, if you open it up, the body and mind of Vinyani, there's nobody inside. That is, inside this body of mind, there's an ego, an I, who's talking. But inside Bhagavan, there's no such thing. So Bhagavan said, whatever words come out through this mouth are coming from another source. Okay. I, I think I understand. That means he he's he he's referring to his body as just a as a just just like the the radio is is um is relaying what is transmitted from the radio uh, station. The Bhagavan's body is simply relaying the clarity that is ever shining in our heart as our own being. Got it. It's your own self asking. It is your own self talking through through the body of Bhagavan. Exactly. <laughs> our own self means our self as we actually are. Yeah. And our self as we actually are doesn't actually talk, but it is the perfect clarity, the, um, the infinite love. So the, the love and clarity we see expressed through the, the, the human form of Bhagavan is the love and clarity that is our own real nature. Um, when you are and that is what I was saying earlier about Bhagavan's look. Yeah. Though it, we see Bhagavan's eyes looking at us, if we are there in his physical presence, it is not those eyes that are seeing. It is 
what is seeing through those eyes is our own real nature. And what he is seeing, he's not seeing, Bhagavan seems to be seeing this world just as we are seeing. But what Bhagavan is actually seeing is only himself. Because what Bhagavan is seeing and what we are seeing is exactly the same thing. But whereas he is seeing it as it actually is, namely as himself, as, as pure Satchit, with the void of names and forms, we are seeing it as this world. So though we are seeing what he's seeing, we are not seeing it as he's seeing it. He's seeing it as it is. We are seeing it as all these names and forms, all this multiplicity. What it actually is, is one indivisible, pure being, um, impure, immutable satchet. But we see it as all this ever-changing um, uh, multiplicity of names and forms. So we are not seeing it as it is. We see the many in one and he sees the one in the many. Or he, he sees, doesn't even see the many, he just sees he the one. He sees the one in the one, we see the many, many. in the one. <laughs> right. But there are no many in his view. Exactly. <laughs> so. But when we understand and, the truth of each of us is such it, then you yeah. know, when you see the names and forms, the truth of the names and forms are also such it, the truth, one truth, right? Yes, yes. But it is said, Brahman had, it is sometimes said, um, Brahman has five aspects. Sat, Chit, Ananda, Nama, Rupa. Of that, mm. three of them are real. Sat, Chit, Ananda is real. Nama, Rupa Nama is Rupa. unreal. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Nama, Rupa Thank is just you. appearance. The substance right. is Sat, Chit. Yeah. Uh, the Nama, Rupa is like the forms of the ornaments. Sat, Chit, Ananda is like the gold. Gold is the substance. So Sat, Chit, Ananda is the substance. That is what actually exists. Tying that five aspects of Brahman to the uh, topic of today, um, Swami Sadhuam once said, back then, Bhagwan used to shine in all his five aspects, both the permanent and the impermanent aspects. Um, now he shines unimpeded as just the permanent aspects. Which, so is, no one should... which is eternal and infinite. Exactly. So, Bhagwan... so he's always here for yeah. us. We should never think but Bhagavan's grace is in any way limited to those 54 years he was living in Turvanamalai, or limited to that form in which he was appearing. His, his grace is infinite and eternal. It's ever shining in our heart as our own being. That's why when, when, when shortly before he, he left the body and the devotees were weeping, Saying, oh, Bhagavan, you shouldn't leave us. Bhagavan said, where can I go? I am, I, there, there's nowhere for me to go. I am always here. Always here means he's always in the heart of each one of us. Right. Um, As he said in the first sentence of that note he wrote for his mother, Angangirandu, that means being there, there. That implies being in each place or in the heart of each one of us. So he is ever present, ever present, omnipresent, because he alone is.
Thank you, Michael. These are these five are very important verses because they're very practical as you try to seek guidance, you know, yeah, yeah. how to go about it and so forth. Yeah. Um, you explained it well in the in today's they, session. They, they're important verses, but we need to understand them. We shouldn't just take the surface meaning. We need to go under the surface to understand yeah. the deeper implication. And that's true of all of Bhagavan's verses.